Growing up as a boy in Mayo Pack, New York, my favorite athlete was the excellent Reds and Yankees outfielder Ken Griffey Sr. This was the era when young sports fans were required to have a guy, and Griffey was my guy. I bought all his baseball cards, I knew his life history, I screamed for his attention every March when my Grandpa Nat and Grandma Molly would take us to Fort Lauderdale for a day of Yankee spring training. I was all about Ken Griffey. Fast forward a couple of decades. I'm a baseball writer inside the Cincinnati Reds spring training clubhouse. It's probably 2003, maybe 2004, and I'm talking with Hal McCoy, the Dayton Daily News Reds beat writer at the time. I casually mentioned to Hal that Ken Griffey was my guy. Oh yeah? McCoy asked. Then, a few seconds later, hey Ken, I want to introduce you to Jeff Perlman. I've interviewed presidents, Hall of Famers, all sorts of legends. I've knocked on strange doors. I've probably spoken, without nervousness, to 5,000 people over the course of my career. Here is what I said to Ken Griffey Sr. Uh, hi. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Reed Forgrave, the Minneapolis Star Tribune writer and author of the absolutely amazing new book, Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy. This is episode number 171. Let's sling some yang. Dad, being quarantined sucks, and so does your podcast. All right, well, Reed, we meet face-to-face for the first time. Uh, no, we, we did the Jim Rome show together. Oh, Wait, shit, we did. Hey, remember that? Yes, we did. Oh, my God, I'm embarrassed. You, that. What I specifically remember about you is you were your daughter had challenged you to wear a tie that was made out of a curtain. curtain? Yeah, by my mother. It was amazing. Yeah, we still have that tie. A tie. I should, I should have worn it today. It's a good tie. <laughs> um, you know what's funny? That Jim Rome, this is not the topic of this podcast, but to me, I always tell people, Jim Rome experience, right? All right. They want to fly out to California for a week. They uh-huh. pay, uh, I think, 200 or 250 a day. You're literally in the studio for an hour. Jim Rome is a really nice guy. They give you a car and put you up in a hotel. Is that not the best gig you've ever had? It was. It was great while it lasted, man. It was awesome. I mean, I probably did that five or six times over the course of a couple of years. And you're right, he's the best. Like, he is such a good dude. I, mean, I think he's almost better on TV than he even is on radio. I think mean, he's awesome on TV. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was a great gig. Great also, gig. Um, when, whenever people are like, oh, Jim Rome, he's a dick, right? I'm like, you've got that one all wrong. I'm telling you, you've got Completely that all wrong. wrong. He's just, he just doesn't suffer fools. Yeah. And I, I respect that. Yeah. Um, so you have a new book out, but before I, I, I get to that, I want to say I'm reading the, um, you know, just casually reading the, uh, the April 20th, 1997 Pittsburgh post Gazette as one and does. Across, and I come across a piece aspiring journalist aims high. That's <laughs> what I'm here for. That's funny, man. That's my senior year of high school. Yep. North Reed, Allegheny high school, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Reed Forgrave, a senior at North Allegheny high school has been planning for his career since he was a freshman. Forgrave, a student co-editor of the North Star, decided early on he wanted to work as a journalist. In his essay for Voice North readers, Forgrave shares his thoughts on preparing for a career and discusses his work with the student-run publication. And I just want to, it was the final paragraph that really hit me. It was, um, my job is to motivate the staff to be as excited about journalism as I am. With the current computer revolution, 
I feel that journalism is undergoing a metamorphosis with almost everything becoming digitalized. I'm ecstatic to be a part of that changing field. And it is interesting because here we sit over a Zoom call. Um, you wrote for a long time for sports websites. Now you write for a newspaper, which is an interesting twist thinking yeah. about quote. You have your first book coming out. Um, that was 23 years ago. I don't know if you could go back in time and tell little Reed, 18 year old high school senior, that this is what journalism is going to be. And this is what the field's going to be. And here we sit. Are you still as enthusiastically endorsing this career? I'm less, less enthusiastically endorsing the industry, but more enthusiastically induce, endorsing the career. If that, that makes any sense at all. Like, this is the only thing I've ever wanted to do. I mean, I, the inspiration, frankly, for, for wanting to do this type of journalism was reading Sports Illustrated in the 1990s. I got SI for kids when I was in elementary school and switch over to real SI come middle school and just being like, you can write about real people and people care about it. Um, I, I wasn't excited about even the the kernel of an idea that could have been Twitter in 1997. I wasn't, that never excited me, like getting my views out there. But yeah, like the idea of telling people stories, man, I, I love it. I love that. It's, ever since I realized I couldn't hit a curveball in like sixth grade and I was probably not going to be a professional baseball player, it's uh, all I've ever wanted to do. It's funny how many of us have the moment of, I couldn't hit a curveball. I couldn't sink a jumper. I couldn't, my mom wouldn't let me play football. I couldn't sink a putt. It's amazing how many of us were motivated by that. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to be, I was like, okay, I, I love baseball, but I'm clearly not very good at it. Good enough to be like the backup catcher for my varsity or junior varsity uh, team. But like, uh, you know, being like, hey, I, I could be a sports announcer. I could go travel with the Pirates. Boy, I could watch 162 baseball games a year. Like now I look at that, I'm like, oh, baseball beat writer is the worst job in the universe. I couldn't, I, there's no way I could do that. But that was sort of my end. Like just wanted to be around sports and that sort of morphed into just being interested in telling stories of, of any sorts of people. And I think the thing with sports is you just have that, that built in interest that uh, people care about their teams and they care about the players and uh, you can tell you know, a pretty regular story about an interesting person and, uh, and people read it. It's, it's a little bit sad that we, um, we lose the, holy cow, wait, you get to go into the clubhouse and talk to Xavier Nady? Wait, you get, you get to do that for a living and they pay you? Like, uh, it's a little sad that that does not last because it's a beautiful thing. It doesn't last, but I, I, I mean, I went into sports writing actually pretty late in my career. I did newspaper feature writing for 10 years in Arkansas and uh, Cincinnati, Ohio, and then Des Moines, Iowa. And then I randomly took a job as a national sports writer at Fox Sports uh, in 2011, living in Iowa. And I remember going into my first major league locker room in Kansas City uh, and seeing Derek Jeter, seeing this, you know, group of 10 sports writers not talking to anyone but themselves. And there's all these unwritten rules in the baseball clubhouse and walking up to, um, you know, one thing I'm not as shy and just walking up to Derek Jeter and asking some dumb question and being like, I can't believe I get to do this. This is such a cool job. And then you still have, I don't know about you. I still have those pinch me moments every once in a while 
uh, you know, sitting courtside at the final four, that's that, that, that will never lose its appeal for me or just having like an honest and authentic conversation with someone at a shoot around, which is rare, but it does happen. But I, I the, the, Oh my God, famous athlete thing wears off pretty quick. Um, what doesn't wear off is just, it's, it's a topic people care about and you can talk about, I mean, just look at the NBA and the bubble down in Florida and how they're talking about real issues. You know, whether you agree with them or disagree with them, sports is a prism with which we can, you know, view our society. And I hope that's kind of what this book, uh, what this book gets to. I just want to say, if I'm a literary agent right now, I am calling, I'm, I'm figuring out who the 10 best writers in the bubble right now are. Yeah. And I'm making life in the bubble. I'm begging someone to write that book because it's an amazing book. I totally agree. And like I am, so I was, I was covering NBA for CBS sports up until a year ago when the travel just, it just killed me. Um, yeah, I got two young boys, uh, who I write about in this book. And, uh, but I was thinking it would be absolutely miserable to be in Orlando for three and a half months. And I heard Mark Stein talking about it on a podcast recently. It's just like, Oh, that sounds awful. But you're right, man. Like the, the alternate universe that that must be, uh, that's absolutely a book. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to jump right to this. So you sent me this book, love Zach right here. And, um, you know, I feel like I never have time to read books because I'm always researching my own books. And I mean, I read books, but they're always about topics, you know, like I'm doing a Bo Jackson book. So everything I'm reading is about Bo Jackson right now. And it's one book after another. It's not that they're bad and it's not that they're great, but it's, it's work, you know? And so this book shows up and it's read. And I know this story because I was the editor, I was a guest editor of the best American sports writing. And this was originally a GQ story. Uh, it's a, it was a story of a kid from a small town named Zach Easter who loved football, lived for football. His family lived for football. Um, he played, he played hard. He was undersized, but he was dogged. He led with his head a lot. And basically, long story short, he goes to these, you know, concussion after concussion after concussion, and then the after effects of concussion and winds up committing suicide. I'm not giving away the end because he wrote, he wrote a piece for GQ about it. Um, how did you even find this story? It's, I mean, you search your whole, whole career for those real stories like this that have real people with like these deep societal uh, importance and you know how it works. They just end up falling in your lap. You can look for them all you want. This was someone forwarded on an obituary to me uh, in right before Christmas of 2015, an obituary in the newspaper I used to work for in Des Moines. And there's this paragraph, you know, it's an obituary about a 24 year old guy with this huge smile and it seemed to have everything going for him. He's in the national guard. He was like a Iowa soldier of the year, just graduated college, uh, good looking kid, smart kid. And there's this paragraph, the sixth paragraph is his obituary where he speaks about not he speaks about, but it is kind of in his words. His parents say the meaning of Zach's life is to spread the word about this disease, CTE, that, that ruined his brain and ruined his life. And Zach wants people to, uh, uh, to be aware of this. So, I mean, it must've been three days after a suicide, a couple days before Christmas, I reached out to Brenda, his mom, and uh, said at the time, uh, you know, I was, I was, I was, I was a national sports writer and I was like, I, I want to meet you. And less than two weeks after, um, after their son committed suicide, I was, sitting in a living room on a Sunday afternoon for four hours 
with his parents and one of his brothers and, uh, and his girlfriend and a couple other family friends just talking about Zach's life and talking about his struggles and talking about his death. And the whole time, I mean, this is like the metaphor that the whole book's about the whole time there's an NFL game on in the background and his dad and his brother and me, we're sneaking. We're like, Oh man, Packers Vikings is a big game. We're looking at our fantasy football scores. And we're talking about this and like the dissonance there was just so strong. And I've done a lot of self-examination about football and I've kind of landed on, I guess I'm a hypocrite because I still love football and I'm still disturbed by it. And I don't know if this can ultimately be fixed. I'm not sure if this can actually be legislated out of the sport because, you know, there's concussions and there's also sub-concussive hits, but Honestly, it was just like this family that was motivated to tell his story. And the, the key, and, and, you know, you read the, the magazine article in the book, the key to this is that Zach left behind journals. Uh, he left behind, so a lot of this is him documenting his descent in his own words. Uh, it, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? This book ain't going to lift you up, but I do think that it's, that it's really important. And uh, no matter how you feel about football, I, I think it should be, make you think about it, uh, that it should challenge your preconceived notions about this sport that, you know, is the national sport and has been for probably a couple of generations. I, um, I do think your tagline could be in this year where nothing has gone well. And even Chadwick Bozeman has died and John Thompson and my dog and everything. Here's a book that won't warm your heart. <laughs> lean in, lean into the, uh, to the awful. Yeah. 2020 sucks, man. And it is, it is bizarre to have a book. I mean, we were discussing this just a few minutes ago before you hit record. It's bizarre to have a book coming out in the middle of a pandemic. And when the whole world seems that everything's going terrible, I mean, your book coming out about Kobe, like, God, there's that, that's how this year started. It started with, with, and you thought it couldn't get worse and boy, has it, Uh, but it is, it is bizarre. It's, I guess I'm just hoping that, at least it's not about the pandemic. At least it's not about the presidential election, even though it's serious and heavy and, and disturbing. Uh, it, it, it's real and it's human. And I think that we can lose some of that in this age of Twitter. I agree with that. Um, is that a hard call to make? You, you read the obituary and then you call the mom not that long after her son died. Um, I've made those calls every now and then, not that often. Is it, is that a weird, awkward, strange, difficult call to make? I mean, it always sucks, right? Like, no matter what, if the person cusses you out or if the person says, my God, I'm so thankful that I get to tell uh, my son's story, it, it always sucks. So you kind of gird yourself for it. If I, if I have a, a talent in this profession, it's a bizarre talent, but it's, it's that I'm good at talking about suffering and people kind of moving through suffering, not getting over things. You never get over your, your son's death. You never get over, you know, all these tragedies that happen all the time. But I think that people derive great meaning from tragedy and in a weird way, I'm good at it. I'm good at knocking on someone's door. Uh, when something's fresh, I'm good at calling them. It doesn't always go well, but I'm always, I'm always so impressed by how often people just want, they just want to talk, right? Especially when they've gone through something. Not, not everyone, but when they've gone through something like this, 
if, if you frame it the right way, I want to talk about your son, not I want to talk about how he died. Um, and, and you're honest about it. I'm always impressed by how much people do want to just talk about it. Right, wait, so what does that mean um, when you say you're, you're good at it? Because it's, it's super, um, it's uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable part of this job. You know? Yeah, man. I, I talk a lot about um, after 9-11 when I was at Sports Illustrated and having to call a family that lost their son probably three days earlier, you know, and, and being one of the really truly defining moments in my career as far as just this moment. Um, if you're writing about people who have gone through tragedy, what is the best way to approach and what is the best way to extract information without making them feel like you're, you know, sort of sleazy and slimy and trying to steal something precious from them? Yeah. I mean, some people are going to feel that way no matter what. Um, I, I have a defining moment in my career that's, that's nothing as dramatic as that, but it's, I was an intern in Seattle it was right before 9-11 and there was a big forest fire out in central Washington state for four forest firefighters died. And less than 12 hours after the parents got the news, I found myself walking up to the door the first reporter to show up and it was Yakima, Washington. And uh, I have never been so nervous in my career. Like forget talking to Derek Jeter, talking to the walking up to the door of this family's home unsolicited and saying, can I talk about, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened in your life 12 hours after you got this news? And I remember walking into this house and it was like, what was bizarre? It was exact. it was a split level house. It was just like the house that I grew up in Pittsburgh, the exact same layout. And I remember the family ushered me in that like his dad is sitting at the kitchen table and I walked to the kitchen table and dad has his head in his hands and, and just his head down. And I just sit next to him and I was just like, tell me about your son. And I was so nervous. And an hour later, we're still talking about his son. And a couple other reporters trickled in. But like that moment struck me as if you go in just as a human. And if you are willing to feel. I can't tell you how often I find myself crying in interviews. I'm working on, for the newspaper I work in, on in, in Minneapolis, I'm working on a long narrative about uh, six people and how they have uh, weathered this pandemic. And one of them's a COVID nurse and one of them's a guy who almost died. And one of them's a funeral home director. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times just on phone calls. Cause most of these have been by phone. Cause you know, up until a couple months ago, I wasn't comfortable meeting people in person. I can't tell you how often I'm crying on my end. Um, I think it's just a willingness to feel and a willingness to try to put yourself in their shoes. I can be a little bit too empathetic sometimes. And, and I think that sometimes comes across in my writing where I will heroicize people. Um, what do you mean? Uh, lift them up to being something that they're not uh, because I, because I try to take their point of view, turn someone from just a human being into all-star parent number one. Um, and I think it takes in my, in my editor at GQ noticed that in my writing before I even wrote this. And he basically said, just like, tell this story. You don't need, you don't need to get all flowery. We can lift that up uh, in the end. Um, but I think that's an editor's job is, is to kind of like dial you up or dial you back. Do you, do you, um, when you go into those situations, are there, what is the risk of taking it too far? And, you know, is there, have you ever overstepped a boundary? Do you feel like when you're interviewing someone who's on the verge of, tragedy or has just experienced tragedy where you push it too far and you 
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, this is, this is not an interview, but I remember on my honeymoon, my wife and I went to Greece and we did like a day trip. Everyone, everyone there, like on the Greek Isles were, they were all on a honeymoon and there was one family that we were befriending, you know, a bunch of people on a honeymoon. We're sitting on a, on a boat doing like a day cruise. And this lady mentions her, that she's in recovery for drugs. And like 10 minutes later, I'm like, Oh, tell me more about how awful your life was 10 years ago. She's on her honeymoon. My wife's kicking me underneath the table. It's almost like sometimes I feel like I have to stop myself, especially when it's in like real life situations. Cause you know, stop yourself from steering into the pain. Uh, cause I, cause I do. And I apologize for my, my computer keeping on dinging. We have a, I don't know how to, decouple my phone from my computer and we get all these messages coming in about the pod that we're trying to form for our second grader. I just want to say, if you just quit the message, if you just quit message on your computer, it stops okay. it. Yeah. Um, no yeah, I'll try. <laughs> Not, I, 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 you know, you were in 1997, you were excited for the computer generation. So here we are. I did not become, uh, I did not become a particularly, uh, technological uh, journalist, much to my detriment of my career. Not good at uh, self-promotion. Uh, not good at Twitter. You're excellent at Twitter. Although I get the feeling that it probably hurts your uh, your blood pressure. I, oh my God. I actually just deleted the Twitter app from my phone a couple months ago because I just couldn't deal with it. I delete it and return it and delete it and return it. Yeah. Wait, I just want to say, um, I feel like you and I are, are two of the same in this one. I am, um, my wife always has to say to me, when we have guests coming over who maybe I don't know that well, don't interview them. Don't, don't make an interview. And I'm always the guy, always the guy. And it's not for act and it's not for show. And it's not, it's pure curiosity. I'm the guy on the, in the dental chair who's asking the hygienist, so what's the grossest thing you've ever seen? Or what's yeah, the, man. <laughs> I, I mean, those, I love the extreme questions because sometimes you just get bizarre answers. Uh, but, but sometimes you just get like, there's a story that I wrote for New York Times Magazine a couple years ago about a, the, the biggest lottery scam in American history. Clearly, I don't know how to quit this program on my computer. Sorry about that. Um, but uh, it, I, I just got it because I asked the prosecutor, what's the, what's the craziest case you've ever worked on? Like my college roommate's now an ER doctor. And every time I see him, I'm like, oh, give, tell me the crazy stuff. But it's not like socially acceptable. But I do think us having a notebook or a recorder or just being curious, like we do have like that that card to ask unacceptable questions. And uh, I have a tough time separating from my personal life too. Wait, true story. I was a, a young writer at the Tennessean. It was my first year there, so 1994. I was a food writer I, because it was the only job they had open. They sent me to do a profile of an exotic meats deli, the corner market in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> and I hung out with the chef and he's telling me all the different meats he has cooked over the years. Deer, and blah, blah, blah. And I said, um, you ever cook human flesh? I, I don't know what got into, I don't know what got into me. I get back to the office and my editor is like, Jeff, I need to talk to you for a minute. <laughs> Did you ask the chef, the head chef at the corner market, whether he's ever cooked a human? And I'm like, well, yeah, you know. <laughs> but if he had said yes, it would have been a hell of a story. Oh Yeah. Absolutely. I did a, uh, I did like a magazine piece about a exotic meats, uh, deli uh, a couple years ago. And I did an exotic meats Thanksgiving dinner, uh, where I did like wild boar and kangaroo and that's awesome. Some other random stuff. 
That's mm-hmm. awesome. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Roman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, who thinks a COVID pandemic is a swell time to buy old school jerseys from 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. I do? Of course. He's always going to 503-sports.com, looking for a New Jersey General's hat, an Oakland Invaders t-shirt. I am. He's a kid who desperately aspires to own the entire 503 Sports catalog of clothing. Right, Emmett? Right? Honestly, I just want a cookie. That's fine. To the book, you, you, you find the story, you go out, you interview. How does it become a GQ story? How does that happen? I got lucky, man. Like, I, I, I immediately realized, like, this is worth... I mean, to be honest, I come out of there thinking, oh, my God, this is this is a book. This story needs more than just, you know, a story about a family going through suffering, mostly because Zach left behind all these these writings. And if the writings turned out how they did, which was deeply personal and, uh, you know, very much a ping pong of emotions, I, I knew that there was something here that hadn't been told. Uh, I sent out two queries, uh, one to Esquire and one to GQ, you know, two of my favorite magazines. Did you know uh, people there? I didn't. I didn't. These were blind submissions. And uh, for GQ, I you know, had like a friend of a friend who knew uh, the former executive editor there, Devin Gordon, who is one of the most masterful editors I've ever worked with. And he had worked with Jean Marie Laskus on her original story that ran in GQ uh, that became the movie, that became a book and the movie Concussion with uh, Will Smith. A uh, remarkable book uh, and a remarkable movie, actually. I thought it was really well done. And I just happened to get the right editor who recognized this, this was powerful. I got, so, so GQ, like, immediately was like, wow, this is great. Uh, I got lucky that I connected with the right guy. Esquire, I have nothing against Esquire, uh, but they wrote me back in a very condescending way, frankly. And, uh, you know, I went with GQ. <laughs> it was, uh, and so it was, a lot of it was sort of dumb luck finding the right person. But I think it was an editor who was willing to take the time to, one, see that there was a story here, but also, like, read the clips of a somewhat unknown, uh, at least in the magazine space, completely unknown uh, writer. And, and I, he noticed from my clips right away that there was uh, there was talent there, and he also recognized right away what I was saying to you about heroicizing people. Is that I he he wanted me to be. He's like, this is your this is your crutch. You want happy endings. Uh, this story probably doesn't have a happy ending, and uh, and he was spot on. And it's uh, yeah, I'm so, like so grateful that I was able to connect with the perfect person who ended up editing this story and shepherding it through from the beginning. It's interesting when I um. So I was, I, I'm not just saying this. I, I thought it, there were so many better writers to hire than me to do that stupid book, but they asked me to do the, the guest edit, the thing for the best American. And I, um, my book, the criticism of my version of the best American sports writing was it was far too negative, which I actually <laughs> can see now. It's basically like concussion, suicide, death, blah, blah, blah. It was like Larry Johnson's battle with depression, post CTE by Kent Babb, you know, like these right. stories, and your story. And it's funny. Someone wrote to me and said, about yours, I say this as a compliment. It's going to sound as an insult at first. Someone was okay. like, why'd you put that story in there? He barely wrote it. It was just the kids' letters. And I actually <laughs> thought you did something that's really, really hard, definitely in the, in the story and somewhat in the book, which is you got the fuck out of the way. Like you had these letters. He left all these basically entries and letters and diaries that 
that you were given access to and you used them to the fullest. Uh, and a lot of people would have paraphrased, a lot of people would have sort of glossed over them and just used them as background material. And I wonder, was there, was it a decision that had to be made? How much of these letters do I use? How much do I sort of paraphrase and just make it part of the story that I'm writing? Yeah, I mean, in my initial conversations before even setting down to write a word, uh, my initial conversations with the GQ editor, with Devin, were about just what you just said. And I was completely on board with that. Like, get out of the way. You have, I mean, talk about like uh, original source documents, right? That's kind of what this is here. It's like this, he's sort of speaking to you beyond from beyond the grave. I can I can never, I always think like overusing quotes is a bad thing. If you can say it better. I think Susan Orlean said that in her podcast with you a couple of years ago that I just re-listened to last week. But like, if you can paraphrase it better you should unless the central part of the story your central character is a young man who committed suicide and is documenting his decline i i I actually erred on the side of using too many um the first uh the first draft of the manuscript uh toward the end of the book uh it's basically documenting zach's decline from this you know very charming and smart and uh ambitious young man into a guy who's just ping-ponging between uh, being on top of the world and being ready to kill himself, drugs and alcohol and all sorts of mental health issues. Um, but to be, a, I was, I was basically like one chapter that was 15,000 words of just him uh, writing and his text exchanges with his girlfriend and the editor very correctly. I dialed that back. Like, this is, this is too much. We need to just use the stuff that matters the most. So it's almost like a lot of this, the story and a lot of the, this book uh, became like almost curating instead of, uh, instead of writing, which it was harder than I thought it would be just choosing the right moments and not overdoing it. Uh, just making sure that if Zach says on six different times, I'm considering suicide, uh, you only need one or maybe two of those. Uh, you don't need six instances of it. So, so that's why, I mean, I mean, this book truly did have great editors from, from beginning to end. And as, as you well know, man, that can be a very rare commodity sometimes. Yes. Um, I'm going to ask you a really weird question. And I was yeah. thinking about this throughout the book. So obviously he's a really tortured guy. He has severe CTE. Um, they do a brain study afterwards. His brain has been decimated by, years of concussions. This is going to sound weird. Okay. All right. As long as it's not about eating human flesh, I think I'm good. What's he right to commit suicide? What's his life hopeless? Boy, that is a loaded question that I am afraid to answer. Uh, I think he, this wasn't like I'm drunk on a specific night and sad and I'm going to commit suicide. He, the opening, uh, like the prologue to the book, is a, a, a short and I think pretty harrowing scene of his first documented uh, suicide attempt, uh, which was in mid-November. It's a and great opening, by the way. Thanks, thanks. I was uh, really well done. I wanted it to be quick and, and action-packed and, and, and tell people about you know, what the story was really about. But it was five weeks between then and when he, uh, I guess, successfully committed suicide. He planned this out. Everyone in his family believes that he knew what he was going to do, that he had given up 
Pope on this. He had written a 39-page typewritten autobiography that he left behind uh, along with a suicide note, along with these sort of daily journals. He basically left his parents instructions. So it was purposeful. Um, I think the... It's like having cancer in the 1950s. Uh, we don't know cures for this thing yet. And, and the science of this is very much uncertain. And it can't, be di- can't even be diagnosed until, uh, until you can have an autopsy. Uh, it has to be diagnosed posthumously. I think he, was, he would have had a very hard road ahead, no matter what. Um, his life was not going to be quite quote unquote normal. But I, I do think if he had committed himself and his mom had uh, found a, a clinic out in California that did dual treatment for TBIs, traumatic brain injuries and uh, addiction and had basically scheduled, he was going to go there. Uh, at least she thought he was going to go there uh, shortly after Christmas. And I think if he had, been committed to that because you know which comes first the chicken or the egg the 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 brain injury the mental health or the addiction stuff uh who knows i think it's a nasty stew of everything uh but i think he could have managed uh, his life in a not normal way uh but in a in a way that he could have led a fulfilling life and i think he had a great support system his girlfriend and his family um and but he really struggled with memory. He hated that he saw himself as a failure in his career, but he was only 24. And I, and I think looking at his parents, uh, to me, his dad is, is not, not as tragic as a character as Zach, but he is the second most tragic character in his, in this book. He was his, uh, his high school football coach, his uh, defensive coordinator. Uh, he was sort of like the model of manhood. And I think his dad and, and his mom, for a while, when Zach was having these struggles in his uh, late teens, early 20s, they thought, it's a kid learning to be a man. Like, I was an idiot back then. I was up and down, drinking too much, depressed, whatever. And I was having great moments, too. And Zach's no different than anyone else who's just, like, learning how to how to live life. And I don't think they realized until too late. One, because back when he was really starting to struggle, it was really at the beginning of uh, people talking about CTE. He graduated high school in, I think it was 2010. And uh, he graduated high school, I believe, the same year that uh, New York Times published the very first article linking CTE and football. I think it was about Andre Waters. Uh, it was the same year that uh, Jean Marie Laskis came out with her GQ story. So I think if there's one solace to the parent for the parents, it's that they really couldn't have known. And that now, you know, 10 years after that graduated high school, uh, we're no longer in this age of innocence. Like we, we know more about concussions um, and, and medicine is progressing, but we also know that if you're putting your son into play football, like you're, you are taking a risk uh, and the risks are higher than, than what we thought where you might just get a bum knee later in life or have a bit of a limp. Like, you're taking a serious risk uh, to your brain health. And uh, yeah, that's a long way of answering, of not answering your question. I think. That's all right. I understand. I mean, um, I just, I kept reading 
the girlfriend who I, I really thought was one of the heroes in many ways of the narrative and is one of the heroes of the narrative because she stood by this guy when a lot of people would not have. Yeah. And she kept saying, we're going to get through this, baby. We can, we're going to do this. Blah, blah. And I just have to think in his head, to a certain degree, he was thinking, it's really not we, because at the end of the day, you're able to sleep. You know, like it just seems, it's, it just seems like it's so easy to say, we, we're going to go through this together when someone has something this bad and you, you must feel so isolated and alone and beaten down and scared and dark. Yeah. I'm the only one inside my own brain. Um, he was, he lived through some really dark times. And I think what is so, what was so fascinating to me, and this is what you hear a lot about uh, with people with CTE, this, this pinging back and forth in their moods. And Zach would go from making this laundry list of life goals, uh, you know, from I'm going to apply for, 10 jobs next week to I'm going to be a millionaire in 10 years and I'm going to buy a certain car that I think is cool. Uh, and he'll just be like, all right, I'm motivated. And then three days later, he'll be like, oh, I just got some Xanax and I snorted a bunch of it. Fuck it. You know, this is life ain't worth living. Yeah. It's really, it's, it, it is, it is incredibly sad and incredibly raw and incredibly real. And the word you use alone he is, he is so alone. And I think that was, I think if he had figured out a way and he had a support system around him, he had doctors uh, who were you know, very well educated in this developing science. He had a family that, uh, that came around to really believe him and, and want to fight for him. He had this girlfriend who, like you said, is a hero in this book. If he had realized that he wasn't alone, I think he could have made it through this, but that's, when you have like a brain disease like this, any sort of mental illness, that's the hardest part is realizing that, that other people can, can be alongside you and can empathize that other people are going through the same thing. It's like, uh, I was just looking at my coffee mug and I was thinking it's like, you love your coffee mug and it's ceramic and it shatters on the floor and you're devastated and someone says, well, you can put it back together. And you're yeah. sort of like, but can I, you know, can I really put it back together? It just, yeah. the, the reassurances in a lot of ways, when stuff like this happens, the reassurances, they're almost counterproductive. People telling you, no, you can get better, you can get better, you're going to get better, you're going to get better. And you're thinking, I, I know you're saying that, but I don't see it at all. Yeah. It poured through this book, this guy who just like, everyone's telling him, no, we're going to get through this and we're going to go to this. And he's, it's just crushing. You want, you want to infuse someone with optimism. Yeah at the same time as being empathetic and being like, I know that everything seems dark and terrible right now. I think that's, I mean, that's where the professionals come in, right? That's where, I mean, Zach did have some, he had some bad doctors that he was going to doctors who were counterproductive, a doctor who told him he needed to pray doctor who told him that football and concussions weren't linked. Um, and then he had some amazing doctors. The, the guy who another, I think hero in this book is the, the doctor who treated him, who was a former Navy doctor who served in a concussion. He headed up this concussion clinic in Afghanistan. And, you know, this is an issue that the military is taking just as seriously as football. And uh, he had a guy, he had some people who were in his corner, but that's, it's a, it's a lonely existence. Cause it's, I don't care how many people are in your corner. No one's inside your brain. Yeah. So I've, um, I've pitched to my agent books, like this um, scale-wise, which is to say high school athlete, you know, Iowa, um, you know, he's not super famous, blah, 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 blah. And my agent generally is like, 
yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't know. Um, it's a freaking depressing story. It's a great story, but it's a depressing story. It's not someone anyone's heard of. It happened in the middle of nowhere, blah, 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 blah. How'd you get the book deal? Um, rewrote the proposal two or three times. I uh, got an agent that I believed in, another person that I would call it, like one of the editors of this whole project, uh, who really helped me shape it. Rewrote the entire proposal after it got rejected on its first round through and randomly got a phone call from Algonquin Publishing that my agent set up in the middle of February. I think I had submitted it in, uh, in September. I had kind of given up on it, to be honest. Not, not given up on the book, but just like, like I'm, I'm probably not going to get a book deal out of this. And uh, I was at Cameron Indoor Stadium doing some interviews uh, with uh, Duke basketball players and got this phone call. I was like, holy shit, this is really going to happen. Um, it really it just takes one, right? Like it, it takes one person to believe in it. Uh, the advance wasn't remarkably big, but I, I wanted to do it because it was something that I believed in. Um, and I think the, the story, I mean, you read the book, it, the, the, the spine, the skeleton of the, of the book is about Zach Easter and his tragedy. And each chapter is about a section of his life. But what I tried to do is make that sense of place, that sense of, uh, you know, breadbasket of America, this part of America that since Trump's election, people are really trying to understand in a deeper fashion, uh, make that a centerpiece of the book. And then also just, this isn't a, what I keep like, this has sort of become my can line. Like this is a book about sports. But this is not a sports book. It's a book about parenting. It's a book about masculinity. It's a book about raising boys to be men in modern day America, the line between traditional and toxic masculinity and kind of just about what we value as a country. And I think that is what turned it from a magazine article into a book. Like, this is Zach's story, but you know, average person doesn't care about Zach's story. Average person might care about what Zach's story rep- represents. Right. You should have seen my original uh, subtitle. It was like thirty words long, and it sounded like a like a master's thesis. What was it? Do you remember? Oh, it had the word America in it three times. It was like high school football, small town America, uh, the death of an all American boy and the, uh, and oh, I was saying, uh, gosh, the progress of the American man or something like that. It was, I mean, it was like, God, you're ready, Matt. And, and my, uh, my publisher is like, this sounds like a chore. <laughs> oh, wow. That's good. A chore to reach. She's right. Yeah. And I was like, I want to sound smart. She's like, let's focus on Zach. I just want to battle back with, my first book, The Bad Guys Won, the subtitle, which I still don't know, it is a season of brawling, boozing, bimbo chasing, and championship baseball with Straw Doc, Mookie Nails, the kid, and the rest of the 1986 Mets, the rowdiest team to ever put on a New York uniform and maybe the best. It's like Dave Eggers style, man. <laughs> God, I hate that. So I kind of like it. Like, oh. I actually like like the snappy title and then the subtitle to be just like something that's just wacky, um, all-encompassing. Yeah, I was trying too hard. Like, to be honest, the first two titles for this book were, I mean, talk about depressing. Let's make it even more depressing. It was original title was death by football. And then the second title was the concussion diaries. And my editor's like, mm, death by football. No one's going to read that. And uh, concussion diaries is like, people have generally not like books that are about, specifically about concussions have not done well. So my publisher, I think very smartly just leaned into the 
personal nature of this. Uh, love Zach. It's the book is stylized in his handwriting from his uh, suicide note. And, I think it's uh, great. I think it's yeah, great. I, I ended up really loving uh, the cover and, and the title, and took a little while to get around to it. But I uh, thankfully deferred to the experts. Which it's funny. I, I would say throughout my career, I've always come in with a title. I'm always convinced the title is great. Like I wrote a book about the 90s Cowboys called Boys Will Be Boys, and I hated that title. And my working title was uh, Scissors to the Neck because it was Michael Irvin stabbing a guy with a pair of scissors. And I was like, this book has to be called Scissors to the Neck. And my, my editor is like, there's no fucking way we're calling this book Scissors to the Neck. That's the dumbest <laughs> title ever. And um, my USFL book, which is called Football for a Buck, where did that title come from? I'm really curious. Football for a buck? Yeah. It was because uh, they settled for a dollar. The lawsuit was a dollar. Oh, yeah. But that was not my title. My title was The Useless because everyone called the USFL The Useless. And my editor's like, we're not calling it The Useless. Someone has to know what this book is about. And I feel like generally they're right. And Love Zach, Small Town Football and the Life and Death of an American Boy is a perfect, it's actually perfect. It's Fantastic. So yeah, those are there. Cheers. Cheers to my publisher. Cause I was resistant for about 24 hours and uh, came around to it in a major way. Yep. Well done. Uh, let, me, let me ask you a final question here. Yeah. Um, you write this book. There's a family involved in this book. Obviously the Easter family is left behind and they lost their, their son and their brother. Um, number one, are you nervous when you show them the book, which I assume you've done by now. And number two, I don't know. Are you nervous? They're going to be like, so you made X amount. Do we get X percent? Does that ever come up in this? Yeah. Uh, I'll address the second one first. Uh, before I even wrote the book, we had a discussion uh, kind of after it was accepted that uh, I will donate a certain percentage to a foundation that was uh, started in Zach's honor that does sort of research for CTE. So I'm donating 10% of the proceeds of this book uh, to this family foundation. And uh, yeah, from, from advance to royalties, anything that comes out of it. Um, it was a little awkward to have those conversations because they didn't want to feel like they were monetizing Zach's uh, tragic death. But I, I do think the idea of getting his story out there, but also this foundation that does, you know, very worthy work. Uh, they're trying to do a lot of uh, like saliva based testing where you could like say, you know, spit here and you can see if the enzymes say whether you just had a concussion or not on the field. So you know immediately, so you don't go back in. That science is still a ways off, but that's like one of the things that they are most excited about. Um, so yeah, that's the, that. And I was, I was so nervous what the family would, would think about the book. And at the same time, I didn't want pre-publication review. And I, I went back and forth on it uh, of, of, of saying, can you read this and help correct it? Um, they got, we did send them galley copies, like the one that you got, uh, which is basically like review copies. And they got it six weeks ago, maybe two months ago. And Allie, the girlfriend, uh, she had one correction. Thankfully got it in uh, <laughs> the final version. And it was like a date was wrong. Like it said Friday instead of Saturday. And she, she, she's a lawyer. She picked up on that. And she was like, boy, I sure don't like, I sure don't want my parents to read the uh, sex scene. <laughs> read. Thanks for that. Yeah. She was, she was cool with it. Brenda has, I think a lot, uh, Brenda is his mom and she has a lot more. I, I think she is, she wants this book out and she wants Zach's story shared. And she's also kind of 
dreading uh, the coming interviews that she's going to be doing and the publicity that's going to be around her family. She's dreading it. And it, it makes sense. And I keep trying to, you know, writers have egos, right? Our name's on the book. And no, we don't. Try, no, we don't. Of course not. I keep trying to remind myself um, where, whenever I do start thinking, boy, I want this to be a bestseller. When I start being excited about the me in it to just like remember, remind myself about how Brenda feels. And a couple weeks ago, uh, she did an interview where she, she talked about being sort of dreading it. And my first reaction was like, Oh, why are you saying that? You're excited about this book. And then, you know, just being a human, you think about, I'm excited. It's my first book. And then you think about mother of, you know, her middle son, uh, the, the kid who was the mama's boy. Of course she's going to feel that way. So I, whenever I go into you know, the media interviews that I'm going to be hopefully doing several of um, coming up, I, I feel like I do have to re remind myself that as much as this is about, you know, masculinity and parenting and, and the crisis of the American male and all these high-minded things that I tried to jam into my uh, original subtitle, like it's a, it's, it's a tragic story of a young man and a tragic and real story that there's, you know, there's a lot of meaning to it, but it's all ultimately like it is a family's uh, really painful story. Um, so I, 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 I tried to respect that throughout the writing of the book. Thankfully, this wouldn't have been a book if it weren't for Zach explicitly saying, uh, you know, in his final words to spread my story, share my story. Cause he gave, even from that first time that I met his parents, less than two weeks after he, after he died, he gave them a charge. And I think that's actually like probably helped them through the grief that instead of being like, this is utterly meaningless. They're like, you know, people will call suicide a, a selfish act, the ultimate selfish act. And I think his parents look at this and look at, you know, this sort of goes back to your difficult question earlier. They look, they frame this suicide as, as the ultimate selfless act, almost like a, like a sacrifice. He's like, allow me to die for others to live. And I think that is part of Zach's message. And I think that's a really hard message for people to hear, especially as parents to hear. But I think it's, it helps me as a writer to get a family that is motivated to tell the worst things that they've ever gone through. I really think um, one of the hardest things or one of the things that's tricky in this business when you're writing about someone who, who died is like, to really, 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 really get into the idea, the understanding that like this guy you're writing about does not exist. Like his life is over. He does not exist. He's, he had a life and now it is over. And every day his parents have to wake up to the reality that their son, who you were supposed to outlive because that's how this is supposed to go, does not exist. And I, and I, I do think too often, I've definitely done this. I'm sure you've done it just because we're all humans. You almost get caught up in it all and you forget this story, what I just wrote, this guy doesn't exist anymore. Like his life is over. And that is, it doesn't matter how many bylines I get or how many people tell me good job or retweet it. Like he doesn't exist. Right. I mean, I'm imagining you're going through similar, although the different but similar emotions about the Lakers book coming out with, with Kobe's death. Like that's, I remember you tweeting about that like a day or two or three after that being like, it isn't about my book. Like this is, this is a tragedy. Uh, this is an awful human tragedy, a father and his daughter. And there is, I mean, I certainly have felt conflicted with the idea that like I'm 
Yeah, I mean, call it like it is. Like I'm, I am making money off some a family's tragedy. Um, I am furthering my career off a of family's tragedy. But kind of going back to that, you know, those not nine eleven interviews that you were doing, or me walking into that family of the forest firefighters' house uh, twelve hours after their son died. People do. They, I, I'm convinced that people want to share uh, the good things about their loved one that was lost. Um, Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I wrote wrote 288 pages about someone that I've never spoken with. I just think the flip side of the sort of what I just said is I would say, you know, you write about the history of the Easter family and I would say 200 years from now, I'd say most of my books are pretty much gone into the ether of just whatever time some Easter family member, maybe they don't even have books in the world anymore. Now they don't publish books anymore, but some Easter family member, you know, in the year, you know, 2,206 is probably going to have a copy of this book and know about the story of their long lost great, 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 great uncle because you took the time to write about it. I think that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. I haven't thought of it that way. That is, that is cool. I mean, I've in a semi-spiritual way, I've always thought like, what what would Zach think about this book? What what would he think that I got right about him, and what would he think that I got wrong about him? Um, I'll never know, obviously. Um, but you know, it's a guy that I've seen I've seen videos of from his girlfriend's cell phone camera of him being goofy. I've talked to you know everyone within you know three degrees of him, uh, everyone I could, but I never actually met this this man in the flesh and. Uh, it's, uh, I think I really would have liked him. I, I look at my now four-year-old son and he's kind of, we, his name's Lincoln. We call him Lincoln the Marauder because he just like wreaks havoc in, in the best of ways. And he sounds a lot like the way Brenda describes Zach. And uh, that's, I mean, that's in my mind when I think about parenting and football and is Lincoln the Marauder want, want to play football? And my wife says no, but you know, Lincoln the Marauder wants to play. Um, I, I, so I do think like, yeah, keeping Zach in mind is, is key for me. And I, I hope I can continue to do that. I'd like to wrap this by quoting a young Reed Forgray from 1997. God. And he said, as editor, my responsibilities are extensive. I must write the mandatory one article a week, but that is only the beginning. I spend two periods a day working on the page layout computer. I take pages home to proofread. And I also take photographs for the paper using our digital camera. So I just want to congratulate you on surviving the mean high school newspaper experience and making oh, it to this point in your career. It was, uh, it was brutal. We had a, we had a dark room in there. I was always terrible at turning film into actual, actual pictures. That, that digital camera was a, was a savior for me. Boy, I sounded like a douchebag back in a senior back in, back when I was a senior in high school, huh? We were all self-important douchebags. That's why oh, I was a journalist. Um, yeah. Well, Reed, it's uh, seriously, it's a great freaking book. I'm better for having read this. And I, uh, I appreciate you doing this. I appreciate yeah. you writing it. That means, that means so much, especially coming from you, even if you aren't wearing your, uh, your tie that your mother made. I want to thank today's guest, Reed Forgrave, for joining me on Two Writers Sling and Yang. You can follow Reed on Twitter, at Reed Forgrave. Read his work in the Star Tribune and pre-order Love Zach, which goes on sale everywhere September 8th. One can listen to Two Writers Sling and Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and reviews are always appreciated. My new book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, drops September 22nd, but it's available for advanced purchase everywhere. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing. <laughs>